1787, from May to September, James Madison gave 167 speeches, made 72 motions, and served on four committees at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. In the preface of his new biography of our fourth president, Jay Cost writes, Most importantly, Madison authored the Virginia Plan, a bold call for a total redesign of the national government that set the agenda for the convention and established the foundation upon which the Constitution would be built. At that time, James Madison was 36 years old. Jay Cost says Madison was America's first politician. Jay Cost, in your preface to your new book on James Madison, you say that you hopefully will give a fuller portrait of Madison than we've had to date. What did you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that Madison has had a very long career. He was in he was in political life for forty years. There's a lot of still, even all these years after he's 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 moved on to into the pages of history. There's still a lot of confusion about his career and whether he was consistent, and if so, on what basis was he consistent? Did he change his mind on essential matters of the American Constitution and the size and scope of the government? And you know. All, if you look at the bulk of most scholarship, the answer is that there was a large degree of inconsistency in Madison's career. And and so there are multiple Madisons, oftentimes is how he's portrayed. But my book, I argue that, that no, actually, I mean, he, there were inconsistencies, but is a core fundamental Madison that we can understand as somebody who begins his political life in 1776 and it follows through into his retirement from the presidency in 1817. If you were in a room with him, based on what you've researched, what would he look like? And if you walked up to him and introduced yourself, what would be the reaction? Uh, well, he was had a striking physical appearance almost sort of the opposite of washington's appearance washington was six foot two um he was a very uh solidly built man impressive impressive physical appearance madison was the opposite he was five foot four he weighed less than 100 pounds he had a very small voice um so he honestly he looks very boyish or he would have looked very boyish. And depending on the circumstances in which you meet him, if you had met him at a large gathering of people, he would probably be unimpressive. He probably wouldn't say very much. He'd seem, it would have seemed stiff. Um, in more intimate gatherings of just a few people, he was very funny. He had a very good sense of humor um, and could be very charming and witting. So it really would depend on the circumstances. But either way, your, your first glimpse of him, the first impression is not going to be I am speaking to a great American statesman. Yeah, a little detail I'd never seen before, uh, realizing that he got married only one time at age 43 to a woman who I believe was 26, Dolly Madison. But you point out that he had an engagement to a woman named Kitty who was 15? Yes. So he was a young congressman um, from Virginia, and this is before the Constitution is ratified. So this would have been in the early 1780s. But yes, he was at a boarding house in Philadelphia uh, with a, a fellow congressman from New York, um, and he fell in love with uh, this congressman's young, his daughter, Kitty Floyd. And the, the, he proposed engagement, and she agreed, um, but then she basically rebuffed him, and she went off and married a doctor and lived in New Jersey. And Madison did not... Um, really make any other moves for marriage again and it's, it's it speaks to an interesting part of his character which is that he was a romantic you know uh, men of that status and social station in that time would have felt pressure to marry for the sake of maintaining status enhancing their status through you know marrying into another wealthy family things like that madison did not face any pressures like that from his family and so really kind of was fell in love with kitty so and and he later on, when he was in his 40s, he fell in love with uh, with uh, Dolly. 
So Madison makes him unique in many respects in that way. Where did he fit in his family of uh, his parents' 12 children? He was the oldest. He was the oldest of, of the 12. Um, he was, and it's interesting because he ended up to live into his late 80s, but he was sickly as a child um, and never thought that he was going to live very long. And I, and I would guess that his parents did not think he was going to live very long because he was prone to bouts of illness and just being as small and short and frankly, having a weak constitution, um, probably not expected to live very long. And it's actually his younger brother, Ambrose, who is really sort of next in line to inherit the Montpelier plantation. And Madison from basically 1776 until 1796 is off doing politics. He's not like Jefferson or Washington, who are doing politics while maintaining a plantation. Madison's father is still alive and in reasonably good health, so he's maintaining the, the, the plantation. And the expectation was that his younger brother, Ambrose, would probably take over when his dad retired. But Ambrose dies in the 1790s and around the time that Madison gets married. And so that's when he comes back to Montpelier. And that from that, when we think of Madison as being, you know, connected to Montpelier, that's when he really gets grounded back in his ancestral family homestead. But before that, he was usually he could be away from home for years. He during his time in the Continental Congress, he didn't go home once. Mount Pelier is where, and when was the last time you were there, and what did you see? Uh, Mount Pelier is about uh, an hour north of Charlottesville, Virginia, um, which would have which made Madison and Jefferson neighbors. Now, this is back in the 18th century. It takes it would take you know several a day at least to travel more than a day to travel between the two um, plantations. But the Montpelier estate today has been incredibly restored um, by um, by the charitable foundation. It was actually owned for a period of time by the Dupont family and had been converted for a while into a place where. Um, like a, a horse farm where racetrack horses were bred and trained, but it has been um, lovingly restored. I was there two summers ago. and It's really remarkable how they were able to recreate um, the Montpelier estate with many of the original items from the family, because after Madison dies, his, his widow Dolly is basically forced to liquidate the entire estate. So a lot of the family's goods and their, their cookware and their furniture had just been sort of scattered and, but it has been recreated and they've done an enormous job, uh, incredible job of finding original pieces that they actually owned. And if, you know, if your listeners are ever in the area and they ever have an occasion to visit Montpelier, it is, it is a remarkable place to visit. You said that he uh, grew up with uh, some sickness. Can you tell us what that was? Well, it's hard to say. Um, you know, he analogized it to epilepsy at one point. It might have been psychosomatic. Um, his bouts of really severe illness often sort of corresponded to moments of stress in his life. So, for instance, when he graduates from college, he comes home and he is has these epileptic fits or something. It's hard for us to know because when you read the writings, it's before the modern medicine, so we don't have anything approaching a diagnosis. But in moments of stress, he could really sort of have a physical reaction. Now, something similar even happens late in life in sort of the political events leading up to the War of 1812. Madison calls Congress into special session. It's not going very well. It's a hot summer in Washington, D.C., and Madison is taken uh, extremely ill. Um, you know, likewise, during the debate over the Constitution ratification in Virginia, Madison has this very severe illness. Um, it might have been stress-induced. We, you know, we honestly don't know for certain. You say you made 167 speeches at the Constitutional Convention. Did anybody make any more than him? No, he made the most, um, I believe. There's sort of three speakers who 
are far and away the biggest contributors. Governor Morris, who's a delegate from Pennsylvania, um, and on a day-to-day basis, Morris would have talked more because Morris actually is gone for long stretches of the convention. Um, so Morris was probably the biggest speaker, even though Madison gave more speeches, and then also James Wilson of Pennsylvania. Um, you know, one of the most remarkable things about Madison's time at the convention is that he is there for every debate. So that makes him different from Morris. But also Alexander Hamilton, who leaves for long stretches. Madison is there from the opening gavel to the closing gavel. You also talk about the Virginia plan. How many plans were there and how did they differ from the Virginia plan? Well, the Virginia plan was the first plan of government, and it speaks to Madison's political genius to come to the convention with the outlines of a plan of government that he works out largely on his own, but then in consultation with the Pennsylvanians. Um, And the Virginia plan, the first couple weeks of the convention, the Virginia plan is the plan they're talking about. And Madison envisions a very strong central government, stronger than what we have today. Madison's willing to give Congress any powers that it would need for the sake of national harmony. Madison also wants a completely proportional Senate. So whereas today we have an equal equality of representation in the Senate, Madison wants the Senate to be based on population. It goes well. The problem is, at first, it goes well, but the small states don't like it. And then by about six weeks or so into the convention, they come forward, led by William Patterson, with an alternative plan known as the New Jersey Plan, which is a much more scaled-back federal government with equality maintained between the states and representation. And it's really – the New Jersey Plan is not – very influential. It's often taught in high school civics classes, but really the New Jersey plan is just a kind of a negotiating tactic that they use to finally come to an agreement that the large states and the small states can live with. So the Virginia plan is the original plan from which they worked and they molded and altered it to turn it into the Constitution. For those that have never thought about it for a long time, It might be interesting for people to know that Virginia at the time, I picked 1780, there were 747,000 people in Virginia. 18% of those were uh, slaves. Pennsylvania was number two at 434,000. North Carolina, 393,000. Massachusetts, 378,000. I can continue through, but it goes down to the smallest populated uh, state or or colony at the time was Delaware at 59,000. Everywhere you look in, in your book and in those days, Virginia had more than everybody. Why was that? Yes, Virginia has more than everybody. I mean, one reason is is Virginia was also the largest geographical state. Virginia at the time included present-day Virginia, but also included West Virginia and included Kentucky. Kentucky was originally part of the Virginia colony, and actually in the first Congress, Kentucky was represented through Virginia. Um, Virginia had grown grown very wealthy off of the tobacco trade, um, really began to take off in like the 1680s. And so what you see in Virginia is the, the growth of wealth and also as the early days of the Virginia colony, it's a very unstable sort of settlement. But as Economically, it stabilizes, you get prosperity, and you also get large families like the Madison family. Like Madison was one of 12 siblings, so you get these very large um, families. And you also get a lot of migration into Virginia as people sort of looking for land and opportunities to make their fortune. Um, and, and when you combine you know, the, the appeal of a place like Virginia as opposed to a place like Maryland, uh, Virginia has – For European settlers coming to America, Virginia has seemingly endless tracts of land to the west, whereas a state like Maryland does not. Maryland is bounded on four sides from the moment that it's created. So all of this land to the west is opportunities. And Madison himself, his family, is a reflection of that. His family was sort of in the middling tier of Virginia landowners in the early 1700s. But then his his grandfather moves the family out west to what's known as the Piedmont, where present-day Montpelier is located, which is something that you could do. There was a kind of upward mobility for Virginia landholders when they looked west. I want to stop for a second and talk about you. 
Where are you from originally? I am, um, I'm from Pittsburgh originally. I'm from Pittsburgh originally, went to the University of Virginia for my um, undergraduate degree and the University of Chicago is where I got my PhD. What do you do now full-time? Uh, full-time right now, I am a, a, I'm a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, um, which is where I work full-time. I also am a, a visiting scholar at Grove City College. I still live in western Pennsylvania. Um, and before that, I, I wrote for the Weekly Standard. Um, and before that, I, I worked for um, Real Clear Politics. Can you remember when you first got interested in history? Oh, my. I probably first got interested in history in eighth grade or maybe seventh grade um, a long time ago. And I just remember I had this great history teacher who taught ancient history to us. And his name was Mr. Macedonia, which is just about the perfect name uh, for somebody teaching ancient history. And really, ever since then, I've just been I love history. And, And since high school, I've loved American history, especially. When did you decide that you wanted to do a full book on uh, James Madison? Well, my dissertation was on the conflict between Madison and Hamilton. Um, And that was the subject of my last book called The Price of Greatness, which came out in 2018. Um, And I felt when that book, I was very pleased with that book. I I think it holds up as a a book. Um, But I I felt that, that there was still more that I could say of use and interest and value about Madison and that the best venue for that would probably just to, you know, put together an intellectual biography of his life. Is it true that if I wanted to, or anybody else in the country wanted to, they could go online and be taught by you through Grove city college, uh, about James Madison free. Yes, actually. I- Yes, for free. Thank you for asking that. So I um, recently completed uh, filming an online course for Grove City College, um, their Institute of for Faith and Freedom, um, and it's it's called the Mind of Madison, and it's going to be available probably the first. Um, it's a six part. A course, and the first the first course is going to be available in mid December, and it's a it's a story of Madison's life, but in the context of the American story, and ultimately with an eye to how does Madison, what can Madison teach us of value for American politics today? What's the single most interesting thing about Madison uh, to you? The single most interesting thing about Madison to me is how he was very good at managing Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson and Madison are best friends, really, um, and they're brought together by a variety of reasons, but their personalities are complementary. Jefferson is a dreamer. He's a visionary. But Jefferson often will say things or have thoughts that somebody needs to edit or to tell him Maybe don't do that. And Madison is very good at that. I'll give you an example of what I mean. After the election of 1796, to which Jefferson loses to John Adams, but Jefferson and Adams are friends at this point. They become friends again in retirement, but they're still friends at this point. They both dislike Alexander Hamilton. And Jefferson is going to write a letter to Adams, basically congratulating him on his victory and sort of commiserating with him on how Hamilton was meddling in the election. And he, he said something to the effect of our, he says, our arch friend from New York is the draft of the letter. And Jefferson sends the, the letter to Madison. And Madison has the good sense to say, you should not send that letter. And it's an interesting thing. Madison really did things like that. Uh, his entire adult life helping Jefferson sort of keep his visionary instincts kind of in check and really anchoring Jefferson in a more realistic, more realistic notions. Jefferson was prone to fancifulness and Madison was really not. And very, he was incredibly sober minded in that respect. And, and so that probably my single most, uh, my favorite, Madison letter was is that letter to Jefferson because it's not just that he taught Jefferson away from that, but he had this incredible way of being delicate 
and talking to people. He's very good in letters, getting his point across without offending somebody's sense of honor. And it's just really fascinating to see how he actually goes about convincing Jefferson. Maybe you should just put that letter in a file. You point out that a lot of the founders and people that were involved in in the Constitutional Convention from Virginia went to William and Mary but that somehow, some way, Madison went off to the College of New Jersey, which is now known as Princeton. Why did he do that? And what was the impact on him that he wouldn't have gotten if he'd have gone to William and Mary? That's a great question. There's a lot of potential reasons why why not William and Mary. Its reputation had kind of taken a turn. It was sort of known as a bit of a party school by that point, to be honest. It's also in the Tidewater region, and Madison's health was frail. And the feeling was the heat and the humidity of the tidewater was dangerous for his for his health. But Madison had also been educated by very strong um, Presbyterian or maybe better put Calvinist ministers. Up to that point, as a, as a teenager, he'd been educated by Calvinist ministers. And Princeton was a Calvinist school, it was a Presbyterian school, um, and so that might have been a reason why. I mean, William and Mary, because it was a, Episcopal or Anglican, was also technically Calvinist, but Presbyterianism was much more rock-solid in its Calvinism at the time. And Madison is enormously benefited by going to the College of New Jersey, above all because there he's educated by John Witherspoon, who's really one of the unsung heroes of the early American founding. Witherspoon is an, he comes from Scotland. Um, he, too, is a Presbyterian minister. He's very Whiggish in his political ideology, so he's very reform-minded. And Madison gets at Princeton a first-rate education, what we today would call a, a, a classical humanities education. Um, and it really speaks to... Witherspoon has all of this knowledge and Madison just sort of absorbs it all. But more than that, Princeton is also useful for him because Witherspoon is always sort of one to question the existing political order. Madison sort of embraces that as well at Princeton. So he kind of becomes just by instinct, somebody who's willing to look at the way things are and think about reforming and fixing them and not just taking things well, because this thing is very old, we should just keep it. Madison was much more of a reformer by instinct, and a lot of that comes from his time at Princeton. If you come to Washington, you can find a statue of George Mason. It's tucked around the corner. It's not easy to find near the Jefferson Memorial, but you will find it very hard to find a statue of James Madison, and the only one that I know of is at the Madison Building of the Library of Congress. Why George Mason and why not James Madison was a a clear uh, monument to him uh, when you have one of Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and and many others? That is a great question. Um, I I mean, I think, you know, I think there is always you have to consider the kind of political aspect to monument building, right, and the political value of – publicly commemorating somebody's legacy. So, uh, you know, the Washington Memorial is planned very shortly after his death. The Lincoln Memorial is put together, you know, within the decades after Lincoln's death. The Jefferson Memorial is an interesting um, one in that it was during the Great Depression, and it was sort of um, um, encouraged by the the Democrats of Franklin Roosevelt and kind of in keeping with their Jefferson Jackson day dinners is that there was an effort among the new dealers to sort of to situate themselves in American history. They sort of embraced the mantle of democracy that Jefferson and Jackson represented. And so this is one reason why there's, you know, the Jefferson Memorial. And I don't think Madison was ever useful in that respect to any sort of would be politicians looking to, you know, burnish their own credentials by building a monument to somebody else. I think another challenge with Madison, and frankly, it's 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 a reason why I wanted to write the book, is that he is ten years, he's eight years younger than Thomas Jefferson. He follows Jefferson in public life, and it's easy to mistake Madison as being Jefferson's secretary or his assistant, which is not how they saw each other. 
um, and it obscures Madison's unique contributions um, to the public, uh, to the United States. And so I think that's one reason. And then I think another probable reason is if you look at a guy like George Mason, you know, he is the author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Thomas Jefferson is the author of the Declaration of Independence. And even though Madison in is responsible for the Bill of Rights, say, he never claims authorship in the way that um, a Mason or Jefferson would. He never wins a battle like an Andrew Jackson or a George Washington would. So I think it's easy to kind of overlook his his contributions, you have to look at American history on a bit more of a granular level from that period. But when you do, what you see is he is there every step of the way, influencing the debate, molding politics around his ideas. And really one of the most remarkable things about him is winning most of the political battles that he gets into over the course of 40 years. As you know, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, authored by George Mason, was drafted in 1776, um, Declaration of Independence around the same time. But some of the language that George Mason wrote ends up, you know, phrased a little differently in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, who do you give the most credit to of being the the best thinker back then? Well, I would say probably the best thinker on the subject of what is what does a free government require and what is republican government as it would have been understood what we today would call a democratic government what does that require that would probably be george mason george mason was probably the most sophisticated thinker but jefferson was its most polished author and it's really interesting to look at the way mason sort of like how how mason takes life liberty and the protection of property is mason's phrase and jefferson turns it into life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and you know we have to acknowledge that like the idea the concept originated from mason but that jeffersonian flourish of pursuit of happiness is such a remarkably memorable phrase and also though I don't want to just sort of reduce it to a matter of mere rhetoric because Jefferson, and it's a testament to Jefferson's way of thinking that he recognizes that it's more than just about property ownership. It's about, you know, something bigger, the pursuit of happiness. It's sort of a testament to Jefferson's capacious mind. Jefferson was a big thinker. Oftentimes he was too big of a thinker, but not in that instance. In that instance, Jefferson really captured something uh, essential that, Protection of property as a phrase doesn't really doesn't really fit. What do you not like about James Madison? I don't like that he tended to hold grudges against people with whom he had political disagreements. He was intense in disagreements with people. He was prone to think the worst of them. Um, he never gave his former friend and ally, Alexander Hamilton, the benefit of the doubt. The two of them had worked together uh, at the Constitutional Convention, and they had worked together in writing Federalist Paper. Madison had legitimate grievances with Hamilton's economic system when the new government began. Um, and he had legitimate grievances and legitimate complaints about the way Hamilton was trying to govern. Um, but he thought the worst in Hamilton, and I and, and he never made an effort late in life to reflect on Hamilton's contributions to the founding project. And I, and I think that, well, I, I am, I'm a bigger fan of Madison than I am of Hamilton. And on the, a lot of those debates, I tend to come down on Madison's side, such as one can continue to debate things from 200 years ago. Still though, I think the kind of Hamiltonian moment that we've had, you know, in part because of the musical, but, I really think this is a long overdue acknowledgement of Hamilton's brilliance. And I think it, it's disappointing to me that Madison, even, you know, 20 years after Hamilton had died, was never thought, wow, you know, he and I disagreed on a lot of things, but he was right on some things that I was wrong about. And he was a good friend and the Constitution wouldn't have happened without him. I, I never saw anything in the record that indicated anything like that, which is disappointing because Hamilton is just one of these characters that comes across the pages of history as larger than life, probably difficult to deal with in time. But in retrospect, you're just struck by the enormity of his legacy 
it's just disappointing to me that Madison never saw that. Sort through for us um, the whole issue of uh, Hamilton around the Broadway play. And the reason I ask you the whole issue is because it turned into being a Democratic Party fundraiser before everything was, <clears throat> excuse me, was over with the play. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, they all had fundraisers in and around it. And why would the Democrats like Hamilton? Or would they? Or did they, anybody ever even think about it? Uh, probably not. I would say that Hamilton would probably be a corporate Republican, which might not be a thing anymore. But certainly, like in the 1980s, Hamilton's economic policies. I mean, look, one of the original criticisms that Madison makes of Hamilton's economic program is basically that it's trickle-down economics, which is the famous, you know, phrase that was used in the 80s. And, you know, Madison might have even called it voodoo economics, like um, uh, George H.W. Bush had said about Reagan. Hamilton's economic agenda is very pro-business, pro-government support for business, and pro-free enterprise in that respect. However, I, I think there is something about these historical characters that, you know, it, it, it's like that was said about Lincoln when when Lincoln died, Edwin Stanton said he belongs to the ages. And there's something for everybody, I think, in, in all of these characters. And I, and I think there's a way you can look at Hamilton's life that I think Miranda teases out, you know, very elegantly. He, he takes a lot of historical liberties, but, you know, takes this sort of kernel of Hamilton being an up-by-his-bootstraps immigrant, and I could see that as, as, as something that would be particularly appealing to the Democratic Party of the 21st century. Um, and, and also this sort of idea of Hamilton pulling himself up from nothing, um, which is really what he does. That's not an exclusively Democratic thing or a Republican thing, but it, it really is an American thing. Um, and that's something that I think Democrats and Republicans can appreciate. May, you know, maybe the difference is just the medium by which the, it was made because it was a musical and it was based in New York City. And it was something that, you know, was sort of probably the overwhelming majority of people who saw the musical in its first run would have been Democrats because they're the theater goers, because they're the ones who live in New York City. It could be something as simple as that, to be honest. I think you could make Hamilton's life, like I said, I think Hamilton belongs to everybody now, just like Lincoln and Madison do. Let me go back to you. Um, <clears throat> things associated with you, uh, at AEI, you're the Gerald Ford fellow, Gerald R. Ford. Um, yes. You are at Grove City College, which is known as a non-federal taxpayer accepting college, one of the few in the country like Hillsdale. Um, you also, if I understand it right, left the Republican Party in 2016 because of Donald Trump. Uh, explain all that. What does it mean to you? And does any of that define you? Um, I think some of it does. I would say, you know, I was disappointed with the Trump nomination in 2016. Um, and I had been up to that point, really had made my living doing regular commentary on American politics. Um, and it was something by that point I wasn't really enjoying anymore. Um, and I think really, if anything, one of the lasting consequences for me of the, of, of that election was really to push me out of commenting on the day-to-day -day, um, details of politics. I still occasionally write for the Washington Examiner, which is a sort of a center-right Washington, D.C. political magazine. But my interests now are, are much more in um, American history and also the bigger picture on contemporary politics today, questions about citizenship and democratic legitimacy, um, and particularly how the thinking around the founding um, can help guide us. And, and a lot of that has emerged. I mean, part predates 2016 because I was working on my dissertation and I had already by that point written several books, but th that election really solidified in my mind that I was sort of better off thinking about bigger picture stuff than, you know, what the latest results of the, you know, this special election in Virginia can tell us about the next midterm, which is what I had previously I had done of. And I and I pretty much 
I, I was tired of doing that. So I would say now being involved at AEI and being at Grove City are really, you know, I enjoy what I do now much more than writing about politics, which is what I had been doing the previous 10 years. How do you keep young people uh, at all interested in what you're writing about? That's a good question. Um, I think a lot of it just comes down to being able to relate to young people. Um, and But but I, I think that American history is – is it's an interesting story and it's 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 tragic in many respects the failures of america over the over the generations is tragic but then there are these remarkable triumphs that america has pulled off and and i think that the way to sort of appeal to young people is to just tell them the story of america and just i think the story sells itself you know i don't think it needs a lot of um flavoring you know you just you know, you, you tell it itself. What's the difference between a federalist and an anti-federalist? That is a good question. So the federalists, and it's a, it's a tricky question because the federalists were a little sneaky with their use of the name federalist. Um, but the federalists wanted a strong national government is what they wanted. During the debate over the constitutional, uh, over the Constitution, the Federalists were the ones who advocated for a strong central government like what the Constitution had. And so the, the term Federalist comes in many respects from the Federalist papers that were written by Madison and, and Hamilton, primarily Hamilton. Madison writes many of them. And the Federalists believed that they're poor. They believed that the way to secure a Republican government or what we today would call democracy was through a national republic. We need to have the states come into one full union with one another. We need to exist as a nation. The anti-federalists were skeptical of that, um, and it's easy to write the anti-federalists off because they lost the debate. But, you know, the anti-federalists were looking back in time and thinking through the history of democracies and of republics and thinking that, no, the best way for a republic to endure is by being small and by being populated by virtuous people who can keep a close eye on the government. And it's interesting because we still have these kinds of debates today over where to put federal power should, or governmental power. Should it be in the state? Should it be in the federal government? A lot of these debates have at least you can point to disagreements between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Um, and so even though their fight was about whether or not to ratify the Constitution, in their arguments for or against, they were drawing on these big ideas that continue to define American po politics even to this day. Who's the best-known Anti-Federalist? The best-known Anti-Federalist would probably be Patrick Henry. Um, he probably would not be the best anti-federalist. He was not entirely, I don't want to say, he was, Patrick Henry was not a deep thinker. He opposed the Constitution on almost an instinctive level, but he was Patrick Henry. You know, he was the great sort of uh, orator of the Virginia side of the American Revolution. But there were other um, anti-federalists. George Mason, for instance, we talked about him a little bit ago. George Mason opposed the Constitution. James Monroe, of all people, is a very young man, is a delegate of just in his early 30s, um, would have just, I mean, he actually want to say Monroe might have been 29 at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He votes against ratifying the Constitution, which is, makes Monroe unique. He's the only president uh, to have been an anti-federalist. So probably those three in that order, probably Henry and then Mason and then Monroe. With all the issues that we now talk about today, how many of them are there because of something that Madison did back in 1787 in those years beyond that. I mean, you know, whether it's the court or the, how the executive branch operates, how we go to war, uh, how Congress deals with things like filibusters and all that, how much of that would uh, Madison have had an impact or we wouldn't have them if he hadn't been there? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think one of Madison's most enduring legacies and probably least appreciated and least commented upon was that, you know, the war, if you look at the War of 1812, was a controversial war. It was a war that was overwhelmingly supported by the South and the West. But the New Englanders were opposed to the war, even to the point of the Hartford Convention um, offering you know, which is sort of this gathering of New England politicos who hated the war, who were angry about the war, and who wanted to restrict the size and scope and power of the federal government over the war. Uh, well, what's remarkable about Madison during this period is what he didn't do. He did not try to censure or suppress political opposition to the war, which makes him distinct from a lot of our wartime presidents like um, Abraham Lincoln uh, and Woodrow Wilson, both of whom oversaw controversial wars, obviously, um, and both of whom responded by, um, you know, by suppressing dissent. I think maybe that speaks to Madison's most durable contribution, um, this idea that people should be free to criticize the government. Madison, as the author of the First Amendment, obviously enshrines that ideal into the Constitution. But I think you also look at Madison as president. You know, the opponents of the war were a huge headache for him, a big headache for him, especially because the war did not go especially well. But Madison lets him be. And I think that sort of speaks to how we like the you know, the First Amendment says what it says. But it really only has effect because it's widespread public expectation that the government is going to let us think our thoughts and speak our mind. And I think that when you look at Madison's political career, the extent to which he contributed to that is really remarkable. And of all the things that he did, that might be his most significant. What office did he run for that he lost? (laughs) Well, this is... Madison was as a great sort of the theorist of republicanism uh, and the will of the people was never really comfortable running for office. He hated politicking, as he would call it. Um, he won most elections for which he, 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 held, he, he campaigned. But it's interesting, his first job, his elected job, was to be um, a member of the Virginia Convention that writes the first constitution of the, of the Commonwealth. And then when that job is over, he goes back home and he stands for election for the new House of Delegates. And he loses. And he loses to a fellow named Charles Porter. And the difference between them is that Porter bought whiskey for the voters. Madison, who was kind of sort of moderate in his habits, bordering on a little prudish, refused to play the game. Uh, and so he lost, he, he lost the election because he didn't buy his uh, he didn't get his uh, his voters all good and liquored up before the election. <laughs> Going back to the numbers, um, Virginia was the largest state. Uh, there were four million people roughly in the country around that time. Three point nine, I think, and in seventeen eighty to seventeen ninety, seven hundred thousand of them were slaves. Virginia had 292,000 slaves. And you say in your book that uh, he, Madison, never understood the moral calamity of chattel slavery. Explain. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, Madison, like a lot of men from the revolutionary generation, from the South, from Virginia especially, understood on an intellectual level that slavery was wrong. George Mason did. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson did. Madison does as well. They understand. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to look at, you know, Jefferson's rhetoric and that all men are created equal and realize, well, what about the millions of men who are enslaved? They understood that it was wrong, but they weren't prepared to do anything. Um, And that's that's not entirely fair. Washington freed his slaves upon his death. Washington does. Mason does not. And Jefferson, frankly, was too deep in debt to do that even if he wanted to. Um, but, you know, one of the things about Jefferson, and, 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 you know, Jefferson in the last generation is coming for enormous controversy, and, and rightly so, after, you know, it was proven that he had sired children with an enslaved woman named Sally Hemings. 
and really throws into stark, dramatic relief his contradictions about slavery. Like, Jefferson could write impassioned rhetoric about the need to abolish slavery. Um, he, he didn't. But uh, Madison, though, is a different is a different case. Whereas Madison is not living a personal contradiction um, like Jefferson is, because Jefferson is siring children with an enslaved woman. Um, Madison doesn't do anything like that. But Madison recognizes, like Jefferson, that slavery is wrong. But whereas Jefferson kind of ha- Jefferson does have a crisis of conscience over it. And it's in that crisis of conscience that Jefferson's personal failings are most revealed. Madison never seems to have had a crisis of conscience over slavery. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Madison, and this is a time when he's in Philadelphia, uh, before the new, before the Constitution, he's in the Continental Congress. He brings an enslaved servant up there. His name's um, Billy is, is the name of the enslaved servant. And he writes a letter home to his dad basically saying, you know, Billy spent, has spent too much time up in Philadelphia, he's gotten too many ideas about liberty and independence in his head. And you, you're thinking as you're reading this letter, oh, like Madison's going to come to the realization that, you know, we need to let Billy go. Well, he says we need to let Billy go. We need to sell Billy. Uh, but the reason why is because we can't have Billy come home and spread these I- ideas around to the enslaved people in Montpelier. It's just a remarkable um, sort of almost a gap in his personality where that he could to, to realize, you know, sort of Jefferson understood that slavery was wrong, felt personal outrage and shame over its wrongness, but then failed to do anything about it. Madison understood that it was wrong, but never seemed to feel the outrage and the shame over it. That never seemed to be something that he lost sleep over at night. Whereas it's, you feel when you read Jefferson and you learn about him, you see, even despite his, his many personal failings, Jefferson, um, you know, really struggled with this. And you, I, I just have, in my research in Madison was really unable to find anything approaching what we would call a personal struggle or a crisis of conscience. Are you at all surprised at how cynical, people are today about what the founders wrote back 200 and some years ago about equality when women couldn't vote and blacks certainly couldn't vote and blacks were slaves. And uh, when a historian says, but George Washington, and it's not just you, they all say this, uh, you know, uh, freed his slaves when he died. Well, so what? I mean, he's gone. They served him all Mm -hmm. during the time that he was uh, at Mount Vernon and in the White House. And that's no great sacrifice on his part. Yeah, I mean, I understand it. I I think that a lot of this has to do with the role the founders play in the public imagination um, and the kind of reverence that historically we've had for the founders is maybe not the right way to look at them. I don't think that it's almost, I feel like one of the reasons why there's such a, almost a kind of backlash against the founders is not because people are noticing for the first time that they're flawed so much as people are objecting to past characterizations of them that sort of minimize their flaws as we begin to revere them or almost kind of cast them as demigods. You know, I mean, you look at something like the Washington Monument or even maybe better, better like the Lincoln Memorial. Right? You, when you go to the Lincoln Memorial, you are confronted with the image of Abraham Lincoln in almost a kind of demigod fashion. But then when you read Lincoln, you say, well, he was very much not a demigod. He had many, many flaws, and he had many sort of tragic flaws. And and I think that that maybe is one of the challenges um, with our historical memory of the founders is that we have, in our the act of revering them, we sort of washed away their flaws. And maybe we shouldn't, I am not a fan of, you know, revering the founders. But I, I think the better way that I think about the founders is to hold them in esteem and to think about their contributions to our society today, both for good and for ill, but then to sort of see them as 
actors in the moment in which they were acting and, and the amazing things that they did and these terrific accomplishments and what can we learn about them? That's, I would sort of, that to me is a, that's a difference than thinking of them as being more than human. They weren't, they were men of their time and, and their time was a barbarous time in many respects, certainly compared to our own time. And, you know, and we should appreciate the extent to which they helped civilize our nation, but we should also, we need, when we do that, we also need to acknowledge the ways in which they failed to do that. And I, so I think maybe that's the answer is that if we don't overhype them, then we won't be as disappointed by them when we notice their flaws and acknowledging their flaws and, and reckoning that we're still dealing with their flaws. And, you know, racial inequality is a fact of life in America. And it's in large measure, you know, be, it, it's because of the legacy of slavery. And it's something that they maybe they couldn't have done anything about it. But I think the more important point is that they chose to do nothing about it. And I think that has to be reckoned with. And, 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 I, and I think a fuller understanding of the founding has to take that into account. When Madison was 38, he went to Congress in 1789. He stayed there until he was 46, 1797. Member of the House of Representatives as the nation started. And on your page 44, you write, no issue dominated Madison's attention during his stint in Congress more than the interrelated problems of, get this, that's what, those are my words, taxes, <laughs> spending and debt. So if he were to come back today, he would find us almost $30 trillion in debt, the subject of taxes every day in the media uh, and spending every day in the media. What would he think? I think Madison would be outraged at the size of the American debt. Um, and I think his outrage would go along something like this, that's, you know, we are burdening a faction within society. We're burdening the young is what we're doing because the young are going to have to pay this debt back. And there are some debts that we should ask the young to pay back, you know, investments, long-term investments. So, for instance, Madison was not insistent on paying off the Revolutionary War debt immediately because he felt that the Revolutionary War was something that was going to benefit generations. But that's not what we do with our debt. Our debt, I think Madison would argue that much of our debt is basically a transfer from the young and from people who are not yet born to the adult and the elderly or, or people who otherwise just don't want to be burdened with paying for the benefits that they receive. And I think Madison, I think that Madison would, you know, I don't want to say that Madison would be a Democrat or a Republican, but I do think Madison would demand an honest accounting by the American people and by their politicians to say, you need to spend, uh, you have to pay for what you spend. You can't just borrow indiscriminately. You can't just borrow because it's politically inconvenient to raise taxes. I think he would say the only reason it's politically inconvenient to raise taxes or the why it's more politically convenient to borrow is because the people who are harmed by all your borrowing aren't eligible to vote yet. Follow Madison up, would say that's not fair. Follow-up question, though, after you said all that, would anybody listen to James Madison today? <laughs> probably not, I would say. Probably not. I would say, the, the you know, after, I mean, my goodness, we've had chronic debt problems for, what now, 40 years now, really, since the early 1980s. I mean, our debt problems are so deeply embedded, we don't even make an honest accounting of things. We we count, at, for the sake of revenue, we count Social Security money, which is actually already earmarked uh, to go to other places. So and I'm not even sure we really even have the language necessary to be Madisonian on this issue. You know, we, you know, I'm just sort of reminded that, that we talk about in the late 90s, there was this period where we had so-called budget surpluses. Well, sure, we had a surplus on paper, but the difference, all of that money was earmarked to be paid out Social Security beneficiaries. And, and I think debt spending just seems to be endemic in the West at this point as well. I don't I, I think that that kind of vision that Madison and Jefferson had a fiscal responsibility is just not something that anybody is really prepared. I mean, there, 
the party out of power always wants to pay lip service to it. Uh, but when they actually get in power, they don't really care as much. You know, they'll cut taxes if it raises the deficit or they'll increase spending if it raises the deficit because that's a way to get reelected. You say that he wrote 29 of the 85 Federalist Papers and that he was in the House of Representatives, as we just mentioned, and he was Secretary of State under Thomas Jefferson, 1801-1809. He was 50 years old when he started as Secretary of State. What did he do in that job that mattered? He, I think that his time as Secretary of State is probably the lowest point in his pub- public career. Madison believed um, that the United States was uh, economically able to, well, basically thought that the United States should engage in commercial warfare with Great Britain. Uh, that Great Britain had been kind of uh, mistreating American commerce on the high seas, and Madison thought, well, you know what? Great Britain buys food from us. They need our food more than we need their manufactured goods, so we should drive a hard bargain. This was wrong. It was it was just not true. Um, on this, this is, would be a particular example of where Alexander Hamilton was right. Hamilton appreciated the power and economic power of Great Britain. Madison didn't, and he encouraged Jefferson to engage in commercial warfare against Great Britain. It didn't work. It ultimately led to the War of 1812. So I, I, I think – now, Madison was earnest in his error. He wasn't being mischievous. Um, and he had good reasons for thinking the way that he did, but he was still wrong. History proved that that was wrong. And, and more more broadly, Madison had a very agrarian vision of America's future of, you know, free, independent farmers. And the British vision was more of an integrated, dynamic economy based on industry and commerce and a sort of economic balance, which ends up being what makes America – in a hundred years, you know, America enters World War One a hundred years later, and is able to bring an end to that conflict in large part because we didn't follow Madison's vision of prosperity. We embraced industrialization. We embraced, uh, for lack of a better word, I'd say capitalism, or at least we embraced the power of cap, the transformative power of capital, um, and that you know obviously creates a lot of problems in society during the 19th century but it is is what makes us capable of dictating terms to the rest of the world 100 years later during world war 1 as we wrap things up i want to ask you cuz you mentioned this in um your acknowledgments about the papers of james madison when you started researching madison where did you need to go to find um the kind of information that led to this book yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. Um, the National Archives, you know, it is a remarkable service that the National Archives has done for the country, for scholars, for authors like myself, and just average citizens. Um, they have put online for free the entire papers of James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, um, George Washington, and John Adams. In searchable format and just and quite distinct from, you know, I always find the worst websites that I go to tend to be government run websites. This is a fantastic website the National Archives has put together. The website is founders.archives.gov. It's an amazing resource. It's really a capstone to sort of a. Uh, 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 an 80-year process that happened in in universities and in the government to sort of get the papers of our great founders to collect them and to organize them so that we can see as, with as much detail as we possibly can, see what they really thought and what they really said. And the fact that this is available free online in such a user-friendly format is really remarkable. And to be honest, if, if, if we're not for that, it would have taken me twice as long to write this book and probably would not have been nearly as good because the search functions of the, the, the National Archives uh, on that website are so remarkable that you can analyze material so much better than just sort of like you know, reading the same letters in a book. You can toggle between letters. You can do keyword searches. There's all sorts of things you can do. And it's a real credit um, to the National Archives and, uh, and also the University of Virginia's Rotunda Project, which is where a lot of this got started. It's really a remarkable resource that, that the National Archives has put together. I'm really in their debt. What is your favorite Madison book before you wrote your own? 
Oh, my favorite Madison book before I wrote my own would probably be um, a little book written by Adrian Koch called uh, Advice to My Country which is just a short, it's a short book, but it's about one of Madison's last public writings. It's called Advice to My Country. He writes it in the 18, late 1820s, or no, excuse me, in the early 1830s, very near the end of his life. But during the nullification crisis where the sort of moments of the specter of disunion and civil war are just creeping into the horizon, Madison sees this, and his advice to the country is to cherish the union of the states. And Adrian Koch, I mean, this book is... 60 years old, but it's this wonderful little book where she takes in real detail this really just a paragraph and goes into detail about what why would um, what did all of these things mean to James Madison. So it's one of those books that you're not going to find at Barnes and Noble. You can probably find it if you're near a university library or if you look like an Amazon marketplace, you might be able to get a copy for like two dollars or so. But I always thought that was just such a wonderful little book. Our guest has been Jay Cost or no, I was going to say Coast. <laughs> it's not even close. Jay Cost. Uh, the book is called James Madison, and, and the subtitle is America's First Politician. Last question. You decided what your next book will be. Uh, I'm not sure yet. I'm working right now through AEI. I'm working on a little series of essays called The Conservative Case for the Constitution. And I don't mean like necessarily Reaganite conservative, but I mean sort of like Edmund Burke conservatism and the importance of appreciating established orders and things like that. That might end up becoming a smallish book through AI Press. But in terms of big research projects, I'm not really sure. I, I have ambition someday to write a book that connects Madison to Abraham Lincoln through the person of Henry Clay, but I don't know if that will ever happen. Mr. Koss, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your time. This has been a great interview. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.